Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on the podcast is Eric Burden. Eric is an alumnus of Washington State University and is an area range management specialist for the Natural Resource Conservation Service out of Flagstaff, Arizona. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tip. Glad to be here. We're actually going to do the first three-way conversation today, bringing back podcast veteran Matt Reeves with the Forest Service out of Missoula, Montana. Matt, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, Eric, when were you at WSU? Yeah, so I was uh, there from, I think, right around 93 to 96. I graduated in 96. Okay. I was at the University of Idaho from 95 to 2001. I had a friend that went there about that exact same time. Works for the Forest Service now as well. And you were in the range program here? No. So I, I was in wildlife uh, um, biology, um, so where the bear pens are and the moose and caribou. I don't know if the moose and caribou are there anymore, but um, I did a undergraduate fellowship um, under the Howard Hughes Foundation and did some foraging dynamics uh, on mountain woodland caribou. And I just kind of always kind of had a been in, been uh, a love of wildlife and and range as well and and kind of uh, plant herbivore dynamics type stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of wildlife people that ended up going to range. I started at the University of Idaho with a declared major of wildlife biology, and then found that range was more the integrated uh, management that I was looking for in wildlife. Uh, where are you from? I'm from southeastern Arizona. It's a little tiny town called Sonoida, Arizona, south of Tucson on the border okay. between Nogales and Sierra Vista. Um, maybe a population of, uh, <laughs> there's not even a town proper, so I don't, can't really yeah. say the, the true size, but my grade school class size was somewhere around eight kids. Yeah. So you ended up going not quite all the way back home. How did you end up with the NRCS in Arizona? Yeah, so I uh, had in a long roundabout way from Washington State, went through a couple different um, states and worked in uh, uh, Texas and Florida. And I was managing ranches in West Texas in the Big Bend region and where I got my master's at in range and wildlife um, from Sol Ross State University and finished that up. And um, my wife pretty much wanted to to go see a different part of the country and she got a job offer in Flagstaff and I knew it and um, here I am. Mm -hmm. And I I knew I'd get on with an agency. I worked for the Forest Service for a little bit uh, and then jumped over to NRCS in Flagstaff. Mm -hmm. I've only been to Arizona a couple of times, but it seems like an interesting place to do range work. You have a wide variety of ecosystem types, precipitation zones, and I think a lot of variability in terms of annual precipitation timing and amount, at least compared to the Pacific Northwest, where we do have a fair bit of variability, but winter precipitation is fairly reliable and the summer is pretty predictably dry. Yeah, we're, uh, we, we sit on the complete 
opposite end of that is that we, we well, Flagstaff, we're high elevation, 7,000 feet uh, in ponderosa mm -hmm. pine, contiguous forest, and then you fall off and it's part of the Colorado Plateau, but we mostly sit in the Colorado Plateau uh, where we, we used to probably ex could expect an equal distribution of winter moisture as well as monsoonal moisture, but you're right, anywhere in Arizona, you can get you can run the whole gamut on on variability, and we have some major variability in our system. So you have a lot of experience managing annually around climate uncertainty. A little bit, yes. I think <laughs> um, I think uh, growing up in in um, Arizona, regardless of of what we see as changing or not changing, um, we are uh, we we can always expect these high variability systems uh, in all different parts of Arizona. Same thing with New Mexico, um, uh, for sure, yes. Yeah, what, is that, what does that look like historically in terms of trying to track or predict uh, that variability within a year and how are things changing with the newer technologies? Yeah, so I think there's um, uh, two, well, I would say that um, we have not done very well at at really um, long, for at least our past 50 years of range management to 100 years, well, since the 1950s, we've really just basically relied on um, rain gauges. Uh, that's been our... Mm -hmm bread and butter go-to um, monitoring technique. And now with technology coming along, and there's it, that's problematic with rain gauges. I mean, we can have, uh, it, I've seen it anywhere in West Texas uh, to um, Southern Arizona to Northern Arizona. You can have rain that falls under what we call a drought category, uh, say 75% of normal. And or even less, you can, I've had it where if you're in a 10 to 14 inch precip zone and you got six inches of rain that year or moisture precip, that you grew more grass than you did if you got 16 inches of precip. So it's kind of a, that that moisture or that precip level can, can be uh, ambiguous at times. Mm -hmm. um, so now what we've done is, is well, <laughs> and like what Matt's doing um, and other people are doing. And I'm just a range con. I, 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 I don't get into the details, but I can pick out things that I think can help. Um, and what we, what we can do now is we can start now looking at um, from a spatial aspect and temporal aspect is exactly where that drought is occurring and I'm using drought. Uh, in this example, um, that we can quantify it. We can say what the the effects are of it. In this case, we're using Matt's tool um, to take a look at uh, production levels and departure from normal, uh, percent departure from normal. And that gives us the ability to, because if you look at those historically, those drought maps that they put out, um, they kind of have if you're in a severe D4 drought, which would be like a category five hurricane, um, 
that would essentially, it just comes out as a big blob. It takes up, say, say in 2018, it took up uh, most of northeastern Arizona as D4. And, but we know that not, that isn't necessarily true to every single part of northeast Arizona. That was just a generality. And so um, using Matt's tool and, and coming up with some changes in production, um, what that looks like, we were a bit better able to start honing in and pinpoint um, exactly where the drought is occurring and to what severity levels. Different, we could put it at different severity levels as well. Yeah, it seems like there's two sort of distinct issues. One is is that drought is, uh, I guess, unique in the in the realm of natural disasters, and that it's not quite as um, not as it doesn't get as much news as stuff like hurricanes and tornadoes, but it probably affects more people and has more significant economic consequences than some of the other stuff that that is maybe more um, newsworthy. And then the, the second issue is that uh, our ability to respond to a disaster is 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 different. There's you know some things that we we know what to do with if if a hurricane comes through and wipes out the coast, we start rebuilding things, but it's uh, response to drought is a little bit different than that. You want to? Can you contrast how we respond to natural disasters? Yeah, that that's I, I can agree with you more. Uh, I think, and it it is a tough concept to get your head around on drought. Um, usually, uh, we don't know it until we're deep into it. At least looking mm -hmm. at, at the effects. Um, kind of what in my mind, how, how I, I, I started recently thinking about this, especially since we can use technology, is fire. If we have fire, that can be a natural disaster, whether human-caused or, or um, um, lightning, which, whichever way it goes. But nonetheless, we have rapid response teams. Um, tornadoes. You can have a tornado come through and wipe out crop. What do you do? You go back and replant your crop right away. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at hurricanes, uh, we have great responses, obviously from a humanitarian aspect. We're, we're, mm -hmm. we're constantly getting better at it. Um, but uh, from agricultural, from southern Florida, um, or at least down below the banana belt, um, you can, they instantly bring in pumps and start moving water real quick, especially from, we did mm -hmm. it, we had some ranches in Florida and we, we moved water all the time. Um, so those are responses. Uh, drought does have a little, a, it, it, we never really understood the extent of it. Um, we never understood the severity of it. And to be able to go in and see, uh, and monitor that. So now, I mean, we can we can look at uh, um, this on a monthly basis now, and we can give. And you mentioned an econ economic impact as well. I mean, if we're giving producers or ranchers um, 
the ability to make decisions on on what what's going on more upfront than what we currently have, that's a benefit just right there. But looking at in this in a different perspective is, can we get to a rapid response? And now I think we have that ability to treat it just like we do with um, fire, hurricanes, tornadoes, um, insect outbreaks. I mean, there's a, a whole host of, of ways to respond to this from a rapid assessment standpoint. Um, at least we would know, at least we would know we were in it and look at the severities and have, if you want it, um, uh, from a management perspective, do you want to try to do something or just hold back and, and wait? But at least we have those capabilities now. Yeah, and the response with something like a, a flashy disaster seems obvious because there's more acute devastation. You know, with a drought, I, I think part of the problem is that defining it is tricky. Is it severe when it covers a large area at a moderate severity, or is it is it big enough to require response when it has a you know, a severe effect on a small area. There's lots of different ways you could skin that cat, and there's a number of variables there. Say, Tip, I wanted to mention something. Go ahead. I wanted to clarify or add to what Eirek was saying about now we have the ability to evaluate these things and, you know, quantify uh, on a monthly basis. I think it should be noted that We've had this ability uh, even prior to the work that we did, just with a different set of tools. For example, the U.S. Drought Monitor, as you mentioned, uh, Eric, that's a weekly uh, tool. Uh, the difference between the drought monitors that are available and the, and the work that we've recently conducted um, and the tools we've we've now landed on is that we quantify the effect on the vegetation. So we are concerned with vegetation response to drought and quantify that in a meaningful way, say as the amount of reduction compared to a baseline. So there's two different angles there. One, we're directly quantifying the response of the vegetation versus evaluating drought as a phenomena using something like the US Drought Monitor or any of the other suite of monitors out there, You know, name your flavor, whether it's standardized precipitation index, or the SPEI, now the new Eddy, et cetera. So I just wanted to distinguish, we've had the ability to look in the past, what we lacked was a way of quantifying directly the response of the vegetation. Right, it's easy enough to measure temperature and absence of precipitation, but that's not quite the same thing as, uh, yeah, the response of the vegetation. I fully agree. I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I, you know, I think if we look at responses, that we have a lot of tools. There, there's no doubt about that. I, if we go back and actually look at, um, well, geez, we, we developed a whole entire agency based on off of a drought, and that was the Dust Bowl. The SCS, Soil Conservation mm -hmm. Service, um, was a direct, um, that was the birth um, as a direct cause from, from a major drought. Um, mm -hmm. But we set we right now those practices that we go out and implement um, best management practices um, are more uh, 
this, this try to keep everything as stable as possible, which is best management practices, so that when a drought does come, uh, that you're able to take that hit. However, we have some, and we've seen it in a couple different droughts, uh, and, I, and I completely agree with what Matt just said, is that there's, there's been a couple droughts where we see, no, no matter how healthy your system is looking, it puts a wall up on it. Um, and we're seeing large herbaceous die-offs. I mean, thousands of acres, tens of thousands of acres. And I mean, of just die-offs, let alone just reduction of, of that potential for the vegetation. It's complete die-offs. And, mm. and that makes it, that's a, so when you start looking at that in the field, I mean, I can take a hoop out and measure that one site that I'm on but how do I cover 5 million acres? Uh, and yeah. that's, that's where this technology has been a substantial help to us. And how do you respond to that when you have die off? Are these plants that will come back, you know, perennials that uh, aren't actually dead, dead, but sure. are early dormant? Yeah. So we have a couple different situations going on and, and, Kind of when we first uh, <laughs> this kind of, this this whole concept of well first of all is it the importance of knowing a rancher uh, to any rangeland manager is is of paramount and that that's how we all especially at those ranchers that are always calling you and asking questions and we got a call last October that said can you guys come up and come out and take a look, but I think our blue grama is dead. And can we get your guys' opinion? And there was a retired NRCS um, uh, range range con that went with us and then another range con and there was three of us that went out. And we started looking at this and I instantly started calling around and it sure, it did not look good at all. And we actually had a really good uh, October um, we had a really poor monsoon season, way below normal, um, higher temperatures for 2018, but we had a really good uh, late September and through October, but we didn't get much growth out of anything. And so I called a bunch, I had talked to every range con that knows kind of the Colorado Plateau, mm -hmm. at least on, on the southern end of the Colorado Plateau. And everything was, everybody had a different opinion. And I am finding that about how you respond to drought. Everyone has a different opinion on, on how to respond to drought. But, so I started driving around more of Northeastern Arizona up on the Navajo um, over towards Springerville, which is on our east, Eastern border with New Mexico. And I was starting to see same things in big chunks of areas. Then I was finding it in our cool season grasses as well. So we went through October, December, um, went to an area and everything was black. Com complete oxidation, that, that oxidized look that just doesn't really, it's, nothing is productive out of it. And it looked, it looked awful. It looks good. And, yeah. and it did. And, but everyone kind of had a different opinion. Well, it'll come back or, well, we got to, we had a, record-breaking um, 
uh, March, snows, lots of moisture throughout all of northeastern Arizona. And we thought we had, okay, this is going to be our chance at least to be able to tell on the cool seasons what's going on. Um, and sure enough, we some of the cool seasons fared, but it's very far lacking uh, in, in vegetative growth. Uh, and on top of that, we've lost a lot of plants just on our cool mm -hmm. seasons. Um, so that kind of put us into where we're at now with our moistures. Blue grama usually does a, a March, around that March, it'll, it'll do a green up and then it'll go into a, a dormancy in May, June when our heat mm -hmm. comes. And then it really picks up and goes to seed through our monsoons. But we sure didn't have a lot of green up uh, on any of that March, April, May, March and April on our blue grama um, that, that died off. So uh, we're probably talking historically, or I mean, talking with people from the, that have historical perspective. Um, they've, they've had blue grama do this before, um, but we're probably looking at a five to 10 year rebound in our severely hit areas. Um, if you just left it alone and it goes natural, it's, you're looking at five to 10 year recovery. And that's what it did probably back in 2000, in our 2000, 2002 drought. So Tiff, this is part of the reason why I think it's critical for the profession as a whole to begin to look at these types of new technologies, because as an example, if we were to use just the rainfall, like Eric said, that's going to give you kind of a false perspective of how the vegetation responds. Likewise, if we just use a drought monitor to infer vegetation response, you know, most of the time it's it, it, it might work okay in some cases, but this is a clear case. This drought we were just experienced in the southwest, the plants uh, were tremendously impacted. We had great recovery in moisture, but it didn't necessarily, it was not reflected in the vegetation performance. And this is why we, we went the route with we did, that, that we did, where we use remote sensing to help us understand how the plants are responding beyond just what the rain gauges would suggest. Mm -hmm. So what, what specifically are you measuring? Well, what the tool in this instance that we're talking about here, um, what we're measuring is the annual production using uh, a variety of sensors that like we talked about in the last podcast, but it was using mm -hmm. um, the thematic mapper instruments and MODIS in some cases from 1984 to present day, uh, looking at annual production. And what that enables us to do is to compare each year to a baseline and determine you know, just how much uh, loss in the net primary production have we experienced in a given year. Uh, and, and in 2018, I forget the, the acreage uh, breakdown, uh, maybe IREC can help me, but uh, there was a significant number of acres in just the three county area that we examined where there was greater than an 80% decline in the productivity. And despite the uh, rain and good snowpack, we just haven't seen the types of recovery in 2019 that you would have expected given those environmental conditions. Right. And with, with any kind of remote sensing data, the result or the, the thing that you're basing management decisions on requires interpretation of the satellite data. How much of that is based on, uh, you know, ground truthing 
um, production data, and how do you go about that? Well, I was just going to say, in the case of of our system in the production in the rangeland production monitoring system, it's not only a matter of interpretation but calibration, as you suggested, and that calibration mm -hmm. comes by comparing with estimates of annual production. And our estimates of annual production come from, you know, the uh, the Sergo estimates using the above average, average, and below average conditions at each site on about 150 million acres of land, plus or minus. Um, so we can compare what the sensor's telling us to those three different estimates, high, medium, and low, let's say, of production. And that just gives you three anchor points in a scatter plot scenario, two-dimensional scatter plot, that you can fit curves based on each one of these vegetation types to. Um, that's calibration. Validation is another effort where we, we will use um, and have used information from the LTER or long-term ecological research stations um, to, to ask the question, you know, how, how close did we match uh, a given set of observations? So it has the two components, the calibration and the validation using different data sets. Mm -hmm. So uh, to jump in on that is, is if I go back to when I first met Matt and he explained this, and I, I'm not a rocket scientist by any means, but um, I, I I got the concept of it. But I I'm probably like a lot of range cons that are that are out in the field a lot of, a lot. I get kind of leery of some stuff, and so I said I want to start testing some stuff that and can will you be able to work with me and and he said sure and and we looked at some trend data um on some ranches that i was really intimately familiar with in northern arizona and it was it, his tool was spot on and going back to that last october a rancher called me out i actually called matt and i said you know this is a situation where um we we can he was getting ready to ship at the end of the um of that october and he was saying, can you give me an idea of numbers? And I thought, you know, why can't we take this technology? Because it's going to take us a while to get this ranch is roughly 300,000 acres for me to go out there with a hoop on all across all of our dif different ecological sites in that short of time is going to be pretty tough to do. And I, and I called Matt and said, how about we take a look at this and we come up with some numbers. So we did. And our ground truth came up really, I mean, almost spot on to uh, what what his tool produced. So then after driving around even more across Northern Arizona, I said, well, can we now take it to a different level? And can we just look at all of northeast, Northeastern Arizona and put it at different severity classes? And we broke those severity classes down uh, internally at NRCS um, from the product that he gave us. And going out there, it is spot on. Um, it's been really, uh, I've been so pleasantly um, fortunate to be able to have this technology because Matt had asked about if we looked at an 80% um, reduction in vegetative uh, growth, 80% um, or great, greater. So if you look at, if you average 100 pounds per acre on 
site A in 2018, you grew zero to 20 pounds. But we identified mm-hmm. 1.1 million acres of of that severity class, greater than 80%. And that's a lot of acres. Um, then we broke it into another severity class of 50 to 80%. Um, and we come up with 2.6 million acres. That's in just the three county uh, area too, Tip. It's important to recognize that. So just the three northeastern counties in, in, of northeastern Arizona there that we evaluated. I mean, of course, you could do this in any scale, but that's just where we wanted to look. Mm-hmm. So are you uh, recommending different drought response actions with the different severity classes? Yeah, so we not we aren't really looking at at different um, management options where prior, it helps us prioritize our management options. So we, we've kind of taken this and developed a strategy from, from the information that, that we pulled together uh, that um, kind of gave us uh, time and space and uh, extent and severity. Um, what we've, we've said is we want to treat our, our priority would be to hit our, our worst case scenario areas. Um, and in this case, our management option that we ended up suggesting, suggested, and all this was just to be responsive, to make it quick, to try to get management on the ground as quick as possible. We have bad spring, this past spring, as fortunately, was not bad winds, but we really get into a windy season where we can move a, a, a lot of um, material off the ground um, that we didn't see that this spring, but it's going to happen. And in our case, we recommended with a, 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 a seeding application and specifically aerial seeding uh, because, we, like I said, we, we have a lot of acres. Now, I'm not suggesting we're going to be able to treat all those acres of a total of 3.8 million acres, but um, people who, who have best management practices installed and, and they're doing really well with them um, and can work it, work this seeding, aerial seeding into their uh, management, then we want to try to get that on the ground to, to hopefully what we're trying to do is mitigate future problems as well as address the problems that we have right now. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Mm-hmm. What is in, in the last, say, 100 years for which we have relatively good data, uh, what has the drought frequency and severity looked like? And is, is there any idea, does anybody have a, you know, a prognostication on how that compares with uh, hi- historical droughts going farther back in the desert southwest? Yeah, so that's uh, um, recently, the past hundred years, we, we've, and this isn't necessarily just the southwest for, for the past hundred years, but we've had five, roughly five major droughts. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the 50s, uh, there's a great book Elmer, Elmer Kelton wrote about in West Texas, uh, it was a time it never rained. And the south, Southwest was, and in, in the um, going up through the plains, that experience, that 1950s was a rather large drought. Um, and it was probably, it was 
it was a big, it was economically devastating to to uh, um, a lot of ranchers. I mean, in fact, that's where they came. I mean, that's when pear burners, uh, those torches, mm-hmm. became were being used constantly um, in southern New Mexico, southern Arizona, and, and south Texas, west Texas, um, to burn off. Just to fill that in, that's when people are burning using propane burners to take the spines off of prickly pear cactus so that cattle can eat it. Is that right? That's correct. That's exactly it. Yeah. But it, it got so bad that um, we they, they were doing that. Um, so yeah. there there was the 50s. Then we had a couple in the 80s in the southwest. In the late 80s, we had one that, that kind of hit the uh, uh, southwest and, and north northwest as well. Um, then we hit a big one in, in 2000. That, that one that one stretched that had a lot of area to it um looking at some of matt's data you can go back and look at some of this stuff and sure enough it that one got arizona new mexico colorado utah um all the way up into montana i I don't know how far to the northwest it, it reached but that one was an extensive one and then this one um there was kind of well there was a 2012 drought uh that Really didn't hit Arizona too bad, um, but it sure took a, a over further to the east, especially up in the Panhandle of Texas and Oklahoma up there. It really um, it, it was devastating in that area. Uh, but then this latest one, at least in Arizona and New Mexico, um, is a little smaller uh, in terms of geographic area, but it had um, and I don't. I can't necessarily pinpoint what we didn't have snow in 2017, 18. I mean, we were at 20% of normal in mm-hmm. Flagstaff, 20 to 30%, almost 0% over in the White Mountains. Um, and then we went into a monsoon that, where we virtually got no rain. I don't know what, why that short compacted, what it was specifically that set it up for this. Um, but it, it's, it's unbelievable what I'm seeing, um, even in comparison to the 2000, 2002 drought. Um, and I guess from the long-term historical aspect and, in the, uh, Southwest, I mean, in the 1100s, 1200s, we had, uh, and there's, there's obviously some, um discussion about this but one of the big thoughts is is we had we had a major mega droughts and i guess they're classifying mega droughts as being over 20 years that moved entire um civilizations um such as anasazi and it -hmm. completely drove them out and they they noticed that from the 1100 1200s there's a number of mega droughts, and then again in the 1500 that occurred. Um, so we're not—it's not unfamiliar, but in terms of a, what the, what they're talking about in the future, they're setting up to say we're 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 likely going to have those mega droughts return again. And some people could argue we're kind of in one now from 2000 to to current to current. Um, we had some years that were decent, but overall, some there, there are some out there making the argument that we're on the verge of being 
now officially an Omega drought. Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I had is that, you know, within the last hundred years, it seems like some of those droughts were more severe because we had created uh, either agricultural or rangeland ecosystems that had low resiliency, you know, so the, the drought in the thirties that caused the dust bowl, uh, I, I'm, I'm just speaking without knowledge here, but I'm guessing that there was, that was climatically severe, but it was exacerbated by the fact that we had lots of acres that, that uh, didn't have sufficient, you know, plant cover and crop systems to hold soil down. Uh, to what extent is that still the case today, or have we have we made enough progress in land management that, uh, to the extent a drought is severe, it's primarily because it's climatically severe, not because we're unprepared for it? I think I think you're. First of all, I, I completely agree. Um, at least, and I'm not an authority on on the history of of the 30s in terms of the, the Dust Bowl drought. But I mean, yeah. I, I did work for the Forest Service a little bit. I can read permit numbers. I mean, we we did have some we from a range management standpoint, there was issues, and that's why they started addressing that those issues in the 30s and 40s. Um, and going on up into the 50s because of that exact thing is that we set it up for, just as you mentioned, we did not have the resiliency to be able to take that assault. And I would say that there, um, today, I, I think we're much better. Um, uh, I think there's still lots of work that needs to be done in areas. Um, some areas are inherently, um, just even from a soil type, more susceptible than others. So, but I would agree that I think we are, um, we are at a point that it is more climatic driven than it is that we're that. And and I think overall our rangelands uh, are in um, really good shape to be able to take some of these assaults to it. It's just when you start increasing the severities of it, anything has its tipping point. Mm-hmm. Well, Tip, I would just point out briefly, that's one of the unique, again, one of the unique aspects of the way we're applying this this information is that if you use our the, the monitoring service uh, through time, you can begin to identify pockets of potential uh, resilience and also vulnerability. You know, we talked about this in the last uh, discussion you and I had, where in the Southern Plains, men, that a 2011, 2012 scenario, uh, created some real challenging circumstances. And to a large extent, there were some pretty decent rebounds, especially on up towards 2015 when we saw a lot of moisture and the ground recovered, as you might expect, but not all of it. So there was pockets where, despite this rainfall situation um, that was favorable, we're not seeing the type of recovery you would expect. And so that's one of the, again, one of the unique aspects of using this type of technology is the ability to look at recovery at a reasonable rate or not. And it's those areas in the or not category that I think we ought to be uh, thinking about pretty carefully. Mm -hmm. What other management responses have you guys been recommending in the Southwest? in a situation like this where we've got what appears to be a, a more long-term drought? Sure. So we we obviously go through our 
we when we're going out interfacing with um, ranchers and uh, and the producers on the ground, um, most everyone has been pro pretty proactive about um, how they're responding with their numbers. Um, obviously, the first one is you start looking at um, uh, reductions. Yeah, you're, you're you're looking mm -hmm. at reductions. Um, the there's been some most of the forest, I believe, at least within Arizona, um, that they, they, they'll put out letters as well, um, looking at if, if actually that's kind of a, if you look at in the Ponderosa pine, didn't even show a drought, Done not even any effects and 10 miles away, it's one of the worst droughts and at least in modern ranchers time or, you know, the ranchers that have been on the land mm. that know that land just 10 miles away. Uh, so it, it was a very strange concept, but I think probably where most people go with it is, is management options with a drought is the first thing is reductions, um, changing up your grazing schedules, uh, which areas, and that's a different, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing with this technology is that if I can put this on, I can overlay a ranch uh, using ArcMap, and I can look at the data and I can look at per, the pastures, what percent of the pastures are taken up have been really hit hard. Uh, so it starts giving some adaptability for ranchers to maneuver around. Uh, I, I guess that probably, I think that's where the, the intent of all this is, is, at least from the technological standpoint, is it can provide the information to ranchers to be able to make management decisions other than just destocking. Um, obviously, that's the mm -hmm. first one that, that um, automatically always comes to mind in the Southwest. Right, depending on other feed resources and how operationally exactly. flexible they are. Uh, to what extent are we gaining in the ability to, to predict that, to predict drought severity within, you know, within a uh, a, a growing season or a three to six month time frame. I'll leave that one to Matt from the technology standpoint for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like they say, prediction is very difficult, especially when you're trying to do it about the future. Um, <laughs> right. But I, um, part of the production monitor that we presently have in place uh, looks at near term conditions, for example, what happened today and what's happened over the last six months in the last year and tries to look into the, to the future to suggest, you know, when we've been here in the past, where did we end up? So if we've had three inches of rain by March on a particular vegetation type under a particular uh, set of scenarios with temperature and the like, where did we end up? So there are, there is, uh, you know, some technology moving in that direction. Another system that looks, to do that is the grass cast that's developed for the Central Plains. Uh, it's a product through the Northern Plains Climate Hub. Both of these types of, of programs try and make near-term projections about the future. But of course, that's, I don't think we're all the way there yet. We've got a lot of work to do, but it hasn't even been that long that we've been successful about saying where we've been, let alone where we're headed. So despite the fact we've got a lot of work to do, there's 
I mean, the amount of progress we've made in this realm in the last five to 10 years is pretty remarkable. Yeah. If, if somebody wants to, especially in a more severe drought situation where it seems like they've got actual plant mortality and they, there's a need to replace plants and not just wait for them to come back, uh, if you put seed down, you, you've got to have some soil moisture at some point to germinate and establish seed. Yes, <laughs> that's is that part of the calculation? Yeah, uh, well, that, that's a, that's a very interesting um, point. Is that <clears throat> that's been one of? I mean, listen, I, I've talked to a lot of range cons, and and it's almost been a fifty-fifty mix. Some people say I, we like the proactive strategy. Other people are like, you just don't mess with drought. There's and seeds a waste of time, and inevitably. Everyone in that camp says, well, you need moisture. Well, we need moisture for range management to work. I get that we, we could put seed out and moisture may not come. But I do think that there's some other things that, that and Matt kind of introduced me to this, is that we can, let's just take ranch A, and we we can take ranch A and, and we've started having discussions with, this is a little bit tangential um, and it's not, we haven't put it to the test yet. We, we're kind of messing with it, but we've been working with NASA. They have a satellite um, that, that provides soil moisture active passive data. I believe I got that right, Matt. Correct me if I'm wrong. But well, that's I think the name that's right. of the sensor, but what it's providing is soil moisture information, and that's a latency of you know two to four days plus or minus with um, global coverage. And the way that we're using it, uh, tip in in our tool or in our process that we've proposed, first we identify where has the vegetation. Uh, broken down. In other words, where have we seen the worst of the worst? Where do we see the 80%, the 50% reductions? Identify those, mm -hmm. um, you know, gather some more information about those sites in a rapid fashion. Then we begin to say, how are we going to deal with this? And part of that is, to your point, where is the soil moisture? And to obtain that information over wide areas, again, we're relying on satellites like, like uh, Eric mentioned, the SMAP or the soil moisture active passive. Um, and that's that's a new technology that's come online since about 2015. Um, but that can tell us, okay, if we overlay where vegetation has been really hit hard, say in the 80% category, if we overlay, overlay that with the soil moisture information, that can tell us our prime candidates for where we might wanna consider some of the rehabilitation efforts. That's exactly, I think, where, what we're looking at is what, giving that seed the best possible opportunity we can. This is a dedicated satellite or satellite suite, or it's data that's being collected from other existing satellites? No, it is a satellite. So it's just a satellite like the hundreds of other satellites up in the air. Um, and it's available every plus or yeah. minus two to four days. And the reading that the product that is retrieved huh. or developed from that is uh, soil moisture content. Uh, and what you're really looking for is not so much volumetric water capacity, although you can get that. What you're interested in is the trend, in my opinion. In other words, have we really been, have we mm -hmm. recovered at all? And does the seed have a chance uh, 
in site A versus site B. And, um, you know, to the extent we can see that with a satellite, uh, you'll be more successful, I think, in your seeding efforts. And that's that's a so what we're kind of looking at on this is just it's we haven't been able to pull the trigger on using that across all of northeastern Arizona, but we've had a couple meetings and there there shows it it there's going to be a lot of promise. Um, our first seed is probably going to be going out and probably the October time frame. So we will go through a monsoon and we'll run Matt's tool again. Did, did did anything change? Just because we planned an area that see, that we were going to seed, maybe it responded, maybe it didn't. Um, and then, okay, how can we look at uh, um, the just as Matt pointed out, what that soil moisture trend was? And it could be that hmm, none of this area is <laughs> is a good spot, so we're going to delay it, delay our seeding. Mm-hmm. So we're getting into kind of adaptive management type. Uh, scenarios, um, and that's kind of where the thought process that that goes uh, on this. I think just from the aspect of being able to look at soil moisture over the past um, 50 hours, two weeks, two months, two years um, on an area where let's just say we go put seed out on on ecological site A and um, or pasture A and we can then go back and start looking at, okay, what has that soil moisture been doing uh, since we put that seed out? Did it rapidly dry up? And so then we can start being able to explain our successes and failures as well, because we're, we're going to have our failures. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Is that information publicly available? If, if I'm somebody who has a ranch in Northern Arizona, and I want to check into that. How would I? How would I do that? Do I contact the NRCS, or is it something people can do on their own? From the the you're, you're talking about from the um, soil moisture, or you're talking about the overall seeding? Yeah, both soil moisture, uh, the the rangeland production monitoring service data, and recommendations for what to do. Sure, the the soil moisture, uh, Matt. I don't. I'm not. I don't remember the website, but they have their own uh, visualizer. Um, there's a website for it. Yeah, there's there's two things mm-hmm. that come into play here, Irik uh, and Tip. One is there's the SMAP data proper, and that can be obtained from NASA in a variety of, of contexts. So if you wanted the images and you wanted them every two to four days, you would talk with NASA about that or, or – or, um, uh, myself, I'll get you set up with the right people. But there's also the soil moisture data viewer. That's available through the Oak Ridge National Laboratory DAC, Distributed Active Archive Center. And that's a soil moisture visualizer. You put your dropper on there, you push the button, and you get your squiggly line, which is a retrieval of soil moisture estimates from a variety of instruments, not just SMAP. SMAP would just be one. Remember, SMAP only came online in 2015, but there are other systems out there measuring and monitoring soil moisture. And what the what that tool tries to do is coalesce all the soil moisture data we can find into one place so that you can begin to look at um, soil moisture across space and uh, through time uh, because different systems mm-hmm. will have come online at different times. 
it is a really fantastic system. Right. And I learned about this at a, a workshop that was just recently conducted between NASA and the Forest Service looking at uh, partnering and uh, aligning our needs with their products. That's how I came to learn about this. And I know we've talked about it, but not every listener listens to every episode. Uh, Matt, can you give a brief summary of how people can access the RPMS data or through whom? Yeah, they can Google RPMS space RMRS. That'll get you uh, the right link. It should be the first link in, in your Google at that time. And there's a variety of suggestions on how to obtain the data. It's also available through ArcGIS online. So if you have an ArcGIS account, you can simply search ArcGIS online for the search terms rangeland productivity, and that will uh, yield a variety mm -hmm. of results there. We're also hoping to, um, we've also got some other applications under development to serve a, a variety of, of clients with. It's hard to anticipate who's going to have what kind of capability and, and, and how they're going to want the information. Um, Ideally, we're going to be codifying this, this drought emergency type of protocol that we've been talking about. Um, we're looking to get some partners and resources in place to do that, and that would be another venue where the RPMS data would be available as a percent difference from the norm, say. Good. Any other take-home messages from you guys? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I have listened to every single one of your uh podcast and and i commend you for it what a great forum to do it and and it makes you especially when you're as most range cons know uh there's usually a fair amount of driving and lots of thinking that goes on and and playing those it, it sure just does there's themes that 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 kind of have definitely popped up uh for sure through through most of yours resiliency monitoring um, adaptability, variability um, are all pretty constant themes that, that have gone on. And, and I know that uh, you've had um, people on that, that have talked about uh, geospatial tools and, and some of the, I think there, there is a, uh, a it's, still, it's still all gonna boil down to, we're never gonna be able to get out of the art of range. It's just going to have to, it's going to be in there. Well, but with, at least from a, a federal funding side of things is manpower is decreasing. Um, budgets typically decrease. Uh, so we got to become more efficient with how we look at things. Um, I can main, I, I really do believe that boots on the ground is a, um, is paramount. You can't replace that and, and understanding some processes, though <laughs> the more I think I understand it, I get thrown for a loop um, and figure out that I really know nothing. But b being able, to, so I'm one of those people that that when people, they're showing off new technology, I kind of stand at the back and my arms are crossed and I'm real suspect of it, mostly because I'm uncomfortable, because I, I don't, I'm old enough that I, I'm not in that, the, I, I, I think my son was born able, knowing how to operate an iPhone right off the bat. I, I can, 
I was born knowing how to get on a horse. That, so that's my technology that I figured out. But I think that if I push myself to understand the concepts and how it can be utilized, it can be a great partnership between um, uh, technology and what you see on the ground. And we're just going to, there are, there's some inherent risk with uh, uh, future generations managing from a com computer, but I think that art of range, you can't get away from being in the ground on the, on the ground. I, I, you just can't replace that. So I think that's always going to be there just because of the necessity. Um, I mean, you have to be legit. Honestly, if you go out and meet with a rancher, you, you kind of have to be able to know what they're talking about and, and be able to understand where they're coming from. And the only way you can do that is be out on the ground, but we are facing some, if we look at future uh, predictions, at least in the Southwest of where, they're taking us with severities of drought. I, I I know that I don't have enough hoops to be able to keep up with it. So technology can be our friend for sure, um, both from a trend aspect as well as uh, looking at um, uh, what are what the effects to the vegetation are are going on out there. So that's all I pretty much have to say. And thank you for for allowing me to be on. I think that's a good point. I would also add that, classically speaking, and uh, the term art refers to the application of science, which is a, a body of knowledge that a person could acquire. And so I think the term art sometimes gets uh, misinterpreted as doing things or making decisions that are unfounded or that are based on nothing more than somebody's whim or intuition. Um, but I think this this combination of information and applying experience, uh, and and some, you know, some finesse to a situation, and local context is exactly what we're talking about with uh, with the art of range. Matt, any final comments? No, thank you for doing this, and uh, I I hope everyone learns something on this podcast. Very good. Matt and Eric, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Enjoy the fourth. Will do. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Mm -hmm.